Welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Lee. Our guest today, Mitch Light of The Athletic. The news today presented by our friends at Sutherland and Belk, a Nashville-based injury law firm. Sutherland and Belk is committed to fighting for those who have been injured in car, motorcycle, and truck accidents. Check them out at sbinjurylaw.com. Well, the news again, not great for Vanderbilt football. The Commodores fall 41-7 to South Carolina. The Gamecocks were a 12-point favorite. That game was in Nashville. Vandy entered at the half, but just completely collapsed in the second half where it gives up 17 points in the third quarter and 14 in the fourth. Commodores fall to 0-3. Missouri coming up next in Columbia. Mitch Light appears today on our guest line. The guest line is presented by Bowl and Branch, started by Vanderbilt graduates Scott and Missy Tannen. I had no clue how comfortable Bowl and Branch sheets could be until I got some. They are fair trade certified, meaning they are made under safe conditions by men and women treated and paid fairly. Try them free for a month. You can return them, but you won't want to. Once you get the sheets, try the mattress. That was voted the best mattress of 2018. Go to bowlandbranch.com. That is spelled B-O-L-L. Enter the promo code VANDY and get $50 off your first set of sheets. Mitch Light joins us now. Mitch is a college football editor at The Athletic. Mitch, thank you for joining us. I hope you are doing well. Doing quite well, Chris. Um, Talking to you right now and watching, not watching, of course, I'm 100% focused on our conversation, but I've got the NBA Finals on and uh, behind me. So, uh, but my guess is you're not too, you're not too into the NBA Finals, are you? No, I'm not an NBA guy. I really have not been an NBA guy since probably the early 90s. Now, I loved it in the 80s, but since then, I just have not had a lot of interest. Gotcha. Well, I am a longtime New Jersey's net fan, season ticket holder growing up with my dad, um, my Brooklyn net fan, and my son being very into the NBA has gotten, and also the Nets are, should be good again. I definitely uh, have the NBA league pass and watch a lot of games with my son, so um so yeah, I'm I'm not don't really care. I guess I want the heat here. I don't really care who wins, but just uh, the, the basketball's been pretty good. As I've gotten older, I find that what I pay attention to is a lot along the lines of what I cover, and a lot of that goes with having a six and a nine year old and being busy with that sort of stuff. No, baseball is a thing that I make an exception for. That's Major League Baseball is kind of my thing. So that's the yeah. one thing. Like even the NFL this year, when the Titans aren't playing, I'm not playing fantasy football, so I'm barely paying attention. No, I hear you. I mean, I would say that Athlon, that's why I got so into college football, because that's what my job entailed, and I didn't have enough didn't have enough uh, space in the brain to follow other things like that. So, uh, but uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, I find myself outside the Yankees, don't watch much baseball, and uh, but uh, I like the NBA playoffs. And also the NBA came along at a time where we I was desperate for sports too this summer, so that, that was good. Well, and maybe it's a thing where it's just you get used to the way you're raised, but I love the NBA in the 80s. I mean, just it was fantastic with Jordan and Bird and Magic and all the guys that everybody knows and Dominique Wilkins. I just thought to me that when the Knicks started to dirty up the game in terms of the way they played, I just started losing interest in basketball, and it's just really never come back. I can see that. I mean, I think the game, your interest might have come back, and we're probably spending way too much time in the NBA, but the NBA game is far different, obviously, than it was in the 90s when the scores were 78, 70, you know, two. Now it's in the 100s easily. So, But I understand why a lot of people don't like the NBA. Um, for my taste, it's almost too much three-point shooting, almost too much spacing the floor. Uh, I love college basketball because I like 
you know, I identify with the teams and, and the, I love SEC basketball, but I don't get the people who say that college ba- NBA is a, a much better, more well-played game. I mean, the players are so much more skilled. College basketball can be brutal to watch at times, even though I love it. Oh, the skill level in the NBA is incredible. I have no problem with any of that. I don't know, and this is a tangent, but it almost seems like, and I'm an analytics guy, and I think you are to a degree too, but sometimes you do wonder if analytics ruins the game a little bit. Yeah, I don't know. uh, I will say that I don't enjoy watching a guy drive down the middle and and pass up an almost uncontested layup and kick it out for a three. Um, To me, I'd still rather have the uncontested two-pointer than the, uh, you know, the 40% three-point shot. But uh, um, so let's move on again. We probably lost uh, some listeners spending too much time in the NBA here. Well, um, you know, speaking redundant, 41 to 7 final again for Vandy. Um, I don't know. This looked a lot like last week where you sort of start to lose your hope at the end of the first half. Uh, you know, they got a chance to make it interesting and then they don't. Uh, and then it just completely gets away from them in the second half, although this one got away from them really quickly in the second yeah. half. Yeah, and let's preface this by saying, and I, I, I don't want to make excuses at all because I thought, you know, they played well in the for, for the most part of the first half. It's difficult for us to know how the numbers hurt. Um, you know, having fifty-five scholarship players, I think that definitely hurt defensively with some guys. Some, you know, Chase Lloyd was in there. I know, and, and that long touchdown run was just looked to be in a bad spot or didn't make a play. So I, I don't want to belabor this point, but that obviously factored in we knew that was going to be a challenge this season and this looks like it was the biggest challenge in week three with their limitations that being said they played well in the first half it wasn't like they came out and just laid a complete egg uh you know i I don't know how you solve the red zone issue some of its execution um i think a lot of it's having a freshman quarterback and and just not making the right plays they were moving the ball the the run game and i'm just kind of going off the top of my head with a lot of stuff here chris the the run game has consistently is surprised me in three straight games and you know no, no, um, uh, Marlowe and then, and then Keon Brooks comes in and, and runs the ball well. Now, their final rushing stats weren't good because of some sacks, but as far as just the running backs, uh, were, were productive. The offensive line seemed to get some push there. And, uh, if you're looking for a positive from Ken Seals, his yards per attempt were, were one full yard better than week one and 1.7 yards better than week two. And, you know, c- continues to complete at a high percentage there. So there, there's definitely some positives offensively, despite the horrid numbers. I'm not trying to paint a big picture, uh, a, a rosy picture here. Um, but you just have to, when you're at an extreme talent disadvantage, you have to maximize your opportunities and you simply have to score in your red zone, in the red zone. And it's, you know, it's just demoralizing and deflating when you miss those, you know, it's basically the same kick. I don't know if the yardage was the same, but it was probably within five yards. He just he drilled it, but it was just a tough angle and didn't really, you know, angle it incorrectly. So I, I think probably defensively is where they felt the 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 the, the departures or the, the guys missing more. Uh, but they made it. They made it. The problem was they made a very average South Carolina team look 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 much better than they were. You know, LSU, despite LSU's problems, that's that's a team that's scoring a lot of points offensively. South Carolina is not a great offensive team. They made Kevin Harris look like a All SEC running back there. So uh, you know, obviously, a di- complete disappointment in the second half. Well, I will get to some roster issues in a minute in terms of numbers, but I do think where they were really hurting on Saturday was safety. You you saw the same thing as last year where guys get in their secondary and they have real issues making plays because they had their two starting safeties 
and Donovan Kaufman and Deshaun Jerkins both out. Brendan Harris still hasn't played this year. Harris is a kid who probably would have been a second teamer for them. So you they've got probably three of their top five safeties out. I think that I, I don't know what the deal is with Coppett that he's not playing as much. That surprises me. But yeah, anyway, I was, told, I was told by the last couple of years, you know, uh, and sorry for the interruption because I do want you to continue. Sometimes it's hard for me, especially when I was doing sideline duty, and unless I really rewatch the game closely, you know, some of those they, they they play so many guys in the secondary with the nickelbacks. A lot of it's so interchangeable. Uh, I I didn't really notice it, but when Coppett was hurt over the last couple of years, I was told that that was a, a really big loss. So I'm kind of surprised with you that you know that he's not in there or or not part of the rotation or whatever situation may be. Yeah, it must be a lingering injury. I don't know what else to attribute that to because he's a kid, too, that I have heard from people close to that program he's regarded as a leader, and I would think all things being equal, that's the kind of kid you want on the field as a leader. Yeah, no, I agree, too, especially, you know, I guess the defense isn't that young. So, uh, But there's there's always things going on that we don't know, whether it's injury or, you know, other stuff, especially this year with COVID, COVID and all that stuff. So, uh, you know, I... Don't really know what to say about that. B.J. Anderson, the other one, of course, he would have yeah. been maybe a starting corner. I don't know if he would have started ahead of Williams or or. They liked him a lot. I know last. Yeah, year. they did. Yeah. He played pretty well, and they got Mahoney back. But I just think that the leaks other places really more than neutralized that. And a lot of continuity issues too. And I, you know, I've never played secondary, but I would think just when you're constantly don't know who's in from week to week, and again, we're not trying to make excuses, but it's just the reality. When you're, you know, it's not just the guys you're missing. It's the lack of continuity on the back there. We're not really knowing. Um, but, you know, it's the situation they're dealt. Missouri was down a bunch of receivers and, you know, threw for 9,000 yards against LSU. But, you know, at least we're not Bo Pelini. That's, that's one thing we got going for us, Chris. Hey, yeah, we'll get into Bo Pelini in a minute. But, yeah, Missouri had big issues last week. I think it had six starters out. I think it was playing – a scholarship defensive tackle who'd never taken a snap. I yes. was exchanging texts with Gabe DeArmond, and I'll dig in on that for next week. But there were teams that had big losses as significant as theirs or worse and found a way to make it work. And I really think that's the issue on the team right now is this is where the other defections and things really start to take effect is when you get in a spot like this where you lose some guys, there's already not much margin for error. And here they are in a spot where they're talking about not even having enough kids to play. I don't know if it's going to come to that, but it shouldn't. Yeah, it's tough. And, you know, um, it's a, from a talent standpoint, in a, in, a, in a top end talent, you know, certain things in years past, even some, some Vanderbilt teams that weren't very good, there were some top end talent guys that went on to play in the NFL. And there, there'll be some NFL draft picks uh, on this team, no doubt. Um but it just doesn't seem like there's the top end talent. And then, uh, you know, obviously you lose those guys and it, it just puts a strain on every, on pretty much every position group has felt it so far this year. Is there talk anywhere about other teams not having enough kids to play? Virginia Tech is one that has really been hurt. Now they overcame it in their first couple of weeks, uh, but they gave up like 9,000 yards to, to uh, North Carolina, only slightly exaggerating there. Um Virginia Tech seems to be nationally the one that's off the top of my head. You know, obviously Big Ten and Pac-12 haven't hit. There's been a lot of group of five games canceled. So, I mean, Memphis was hit big. And, uh, you know, th th there's uh, other non-Power 5 teams. But from a group of five, Vanderbilt and Virginia Tech are the only two that I, 
I've really noticed that seem to be close to not being able to uh, fill the team. What is Tech's issue? Just COVID, just same thing. Just uh, contact tracing, guys out and all that stuff. Now you've got to have, is it 53 to be able to play? Three, Vanderbilt had 50, 55, right? Uh, and that's not scholarship players, that's just players, correct? Um, I think it's scholarship, actually. Is I'm it not scholarship? Sure. I was going to say, yeah. it seems like to me if you had uh, 50-whatever, you, you could just go grab a couple of soccer players on campus and call right. them kickers and right. suit I them think, up. I, I think that's why they're trying. They, they, I think that's maybe why it is scholarship, so teams just don't do that. And I don't know if it's a set number. I think it's if it's below that, you can still – like negotiate so to speak because it's not not all position groups not all guys out are created equal if you have them spread out throughout your roster but you still have enough guys in each position that's different than having you know six defensive backs out or whatever linemen where you can't field the team so by the way this is a complete tangent to everything and i'll give i'll give my uh, a little plug to what we're doing um i just have a stat that might surprise you we're working on, I think I might have mentioned it last week, a, a kind of a recruiting project at The Athletic that will start with the ACC, uh, poured through about 10 years of data on recruiting and, and went team by team. Did you know that well as Duke has done under David Cutcliffe, Duke has had, in the David Cutcliffe era, Duke has only had five NFL draft picks. What? In thir- I think it's 13 years. That stunned me because we we're talking in, in this Duke part of this thing for the ACC tomorrow, talking about how, you know, they've kind of overachieved. They found their, like, level in recruiting, and they've developed guys, but they're they're not developing guys that well. In that same span, Vanderbilt's had 19. Duke's had five. Vanderbilt's had 19. I That's crazy. By, I was stunned by that stat. Well, once Daniel Jones, who was, what, a top five guy overall? Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, Jones was a two-star recruiter who I think was going to Princeton. Um, so he is one case where they developed a guy. But, uh, yeah, I was <laughs> – that was – that was – that was pretty stunning. Now, I wonder if they've had a number of undrafted free agents who made it. It'd be interesting to check and see how many guys are in the league right now because basically, if you're from Duke so. in the NFL right now, you'd be a Cutcliffe guy, I would think. Well, yeah. I mean, there's, Unless you're there's, a 17-year-long snapper. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I mean, we can look it up. It's not worth you know doing it on the podcast. But I don't think they've had a lot of undrafted free agents or anything like that. They just – I mean, in one way, it's a compliment to Cutcliffe that they've won as much as they have or have been as you know, successful – Another way, it's like you're not developing your guys. And then another way, it's kind of a shot at the ACC, that they've been able to win as much as they have without premier talent. Yeah, that's a really good synopsis of that, I think. Um, Before we talk about the SEC, anything else coming out of the Vandy-Carolina game that caught your eye, Mitch? Um, Let me go back to the box score here. Uh, Not really, you know, kind of went over it. Um, Again, you know, Keon Henry Brooks, I guess he's Henry Brooks now. A 5.5 yard average. It's hard to say the offensive line. It's been a pleasant surprise, I guess. It's been better than I thought. I was kind of fearing the worst. And, you know, I, it's just, Vanderbilt wasn't going to win that game, but it be, being able to punch the ball in the end zone um, would have really made it interesting. And, and you know, South Carolina, gets into, when they get a two score lead, they get into a comfort zone. Um, and you, you, what you need to do is prevent from teams getting in that comfort zone. Don't don't let them get that two score lead. That's the problem with one of the problems with Vanderbilt this year is they're, they're so they have such difficulty scoring that teams just feel like you know once they're up by more than a touchdown, they just kind of cruise control, don't screw up, and I think and then that lets them play easier, lets them play freer, and I think we saw that on, on Saturday. I just was noticing something on the stat sheet here. 
I'm taking the four longest catches they had by individual players. Ben Bresnahan goes for 23. Cam Johnson goes for 22. Amir Abdul-Rahman goes for 33. And Jaden Harrison goes for 25. You take those four out, and Ken Seals' other 20 throws, well, I take that back. One went to Harrison, and that was charged to right. So you take that one out, that's still what? 21 throws that go for like 70 something yards. I mean, point is they weren't successfully yeah, moving you, the I, ball downfield. I mean, do, yeah. Right. Right. You could do that with a lot of sets. I mean, I, I think having four different, I count having four different guys with catches of 20 plus yards is, is was surprising to me. I, you know, I, I wouldn't think they would have had that. So uh, I bet you could do that with a lot of teams as you, you, you cherry pick out the top five, especially in a lot of these spread offenses with quick strikes and stuff like that. So, um, you know, uh, let, let's before we move on, let's talk. Ben Bresnahan's been, you know, he's he was good last year in limited actions, got really good hands. He 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 looks like he needs to go bigger. He looks like a, a he's got NFL pass catching skills. Put it that way. Yeah, he does. He also led the team with six targets. Yeah. And, you know, he, he I think he should. Uh, him and Cam Johnson are the two best. You know, Abdul Rahman made some nice catches, too. So, you know, I. There's not an abundance of pass catchers, but with those three guys right there, that, that's that's not a bad little trio. Yeah, Jaden Harrison is the one that I'm kind of watching because they need speed, and I think he's a right. kid who can give them some. Right, right. So, um, yeah, it's just – it is what it is right now. They're in the situation they are, and you just um, – now, I didn't want – I told you I had some work duties that uh, came up in the second half, and I recorded the game, but I didn't, I didn't finish watching it. Is Mike Wright 100% the backup quarterback? Now, I know he's the wildcat option. Bring him in. Is it is is he the the, the backup? It's not um, um, Danny Clark? Well, I think they're listing Clark as the backup. And my understanding was Clark was their number two exiting camp. You know, I think that's a case where, you know, he's been in games in situational spots. So I, I mean, to me, I guess Maybe that's one where they pulled seals. Hurt. Right. If Seals gets hurt in the first quarter, maybe they go to Danny Clark, but they're just put in right at the end of the game. Yeah. Because they want to give him some snaps. Maybe, you know, different scenarios there. Yeah, I think that's what I think, too. I mean, Clark's arm, from what I understand, is much better. Um, I think Wright really struggles to throw the ball. So I think I would expect that they are in a game, say that they go to Missouri and it's late third quarter and it's tied and Seals gets hurt. I would think that they would go to Clark in that spot. Yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at there. And, you know, right could be still situational, but um, yeah, that's, that's uh, interesting to watch with. It's, it's, it's rare to have four new quarterbacks on the roster in the same year. Well, speaking of interesting, how about Ole Miss in Alabama? That was fun. <laughs> it did, there's a great stat that I think one of the guys, Roger Sherman from the ringer had uh, that I, I heard pointed out in a couple of the athletic podcasts I listened to today. And I, I Alabama had, if you take every possession, they left only like 41 yards in the field. They gained every yard available. Oh, my. 41. That one yard where they fumbled at the goal line, and then I guess they – I don't remember this. I was flipping around, but I watched most of the game. I think they punted from the Ole Miss 40. So talk about efficiency. They had like 700 out of a possible 740 yards of total offense. I don't know that I've ever heard that. Yeah, that's that's. I mean, that's as efficient as you can almost get. And – Ole Miss is, I looked, I tweeted this last night, Ole Miss has given up like 1,290 yards in, in two home games. Um, so Ole Miss is fun to watch both sides of the ball. But that was uh, that was crazy. I mean, there's some crazy games in the SEC. 
I had a friend at church that's a big Alabama fan. It says to me this morning, like, and I can't remember the term he used, but like, he's like, was there some sort of sign stealing going on with Lane Kiffin? Like, maybe knowing what Alabama's calls were. I mean, like, even if you do, they've still got all that talent. And I mean, you know, some years, if your team's not good enough, it won't matter. But that was an interesting point that he raised is that, you know, well, of course, that- Kiffin was on that sideline before and did. Did he know something or a way to to get at something and figure something out? Because I don't think anybody expected Ole Miss to score that much. Well, that was the talk after the game. Both Saban and I think Dylan Moses said that they thought Ole Miss had their stole their signs. And Saban said, which happens quite a bit, you know, there's a lot of sign stealing going on. Lane Kiffin tweeted today, FYI, doesn't matter. We go so fast, you know, we don't really look at their signs anyway. We just do what we do. So Kiffin kind of disputed that, and, you know, they, they do snap the ball so quickly there. So I don't care if they did or didn't. That's still uh, to do what they did to that Alabama defense. And I, I think it's it's part scheme. I think Lane Kiffin, although he's not the play caller, but the, he's got a really good scheme. They have good offense. They have good skill players. Corral's really good. Elijah Moore, their running backs. I mean, Jerry Neely is a five-star guy. Snoop Connor's really good. They have very good skill players. And we saw what they, you know, obviously a different level of defense, but we saw what they did to Vanderbilt last year uh, running the ball. Now they've got a different quarterback this year. They've gone with Corral over John Rice Plumley, but uh, uh, they have good skill on offense, not very good skill on defense. Were you surprised that Georgia and Tennessee wasn't closer? Uh, a little bit. Now, that was a game where I was working in the first half. I had it, had it on, but I wasn't paying attention snap by snap. And I know obviously Tennessee scored in the first two plays of the game, got a fluke touchdown there. Um, and kind of gave him some comments. But they also made some plays in the passing game there. And uh, I was sitting there watching the game in the second quarter thinking, okay, Georgia's still probably going to win this game, but can they win a championship with Stetson Bennett at quarterback? And um, just can, can they make enough plays in the passing game? But then once they got the lead, once they got comfortable, and they, that, that second-half defensive performance was amazing by Georgia because Tennessee has a very good offensive line from a, from a just pure talent and then – they played great in the first two games. They were mauling people in the first two games. So that, to me, is Georgia was so good defensively. Um, you know, I didn't really know what to expect. It's been such a crazy year uh, so far. It's hard to predict games. You know, look at the, some of the teams in the league, the up-and-down performances. So I guess I wasn't that surprised. Uh, you know, it, they just couldn't block Georgia in, in, in the second half. Garantano had a, a, absolutely no time. They couldn't run the ball like they had in the first couple of games. I was floored by LSU Missouri. What was the line on that one? It changed big time because it was supposed to be. I think it was originally like twenty-one, and then it went down to fourteen because the the venue switch. I didn't watch some of that game. I think, like I mentioned, the Ole Miss Alabama game. I think a lot of that, it's all bad defense, but I think a lot of it's good skill. I think the LSU from what I watched in that game. Horrible coaching, horrible defense, more so than Missouri having skill. Like I said, they had a lot of their quarterback, Basil, played well, obviously, but they had a lot of receivers out for COVID. I, LSU just, the, every time I look up, there's guys wide open. Look at the highlights. It's just Missouri guys running wide open. And, you know, Bo Pelini was hired, guaranteed three year contract, making 2.5 or whatever a year. I don't know if the game's passed him by or whatever, but they have been horrible on defense in two of their three games. And again, it just it looked like they had guys just completely out of place. So yeah, I was, I was very surprised by that game. Yeah. I have a feeling if it's as bad the rest of the year, that guarantee will get paid off in the off season. 
Exactly. It's on, it's on coach. O. I mean, he, he, he was, I mean, Dave Aranda left on his own to get the head coaching job in Baylor. No one faults him there, but he, uh, he, he over the summer is talking about how great their defense looked. It looked better this than it did at any point last year. It was kind of a shot at Aranda and he had his guy, they were going three, four and all that. So, and he called out the coaches, he called out the players, but he basically said, we got, we got to do better as coaches. And, um, they, they do. Cause I don't care how many starters they lost. They have too many good players to, to be getting torched like that by a Missouri team that was shorthanded. I didn't get to watch a bit of Florida and A&M because it was the same time as Vandy, but that one was kind of a stunner too. Yeah, I watched I watched a dual screen because I, I deal with uh, Alan Taylor, our Florida writer, so I pretty much have to watch that game. So um, it, it was similar to the, the Alabama stat I told you about where maximizing your yards, there was only one punt per team in that game, two punts total. Um, the, the key were the turnovers late in the game. Florida had the lead and turned it over at midfield. And a uh, and went down and, and scored, kicked a field goal. Kellen Mond played very well. Isaiah Spiller was great. You know, we saw what he did to Vanderbilt. And, you know, he's a big play guy. And Florida's, Florida's offense continues to, to be outstanding. But they're having major defensive issues, too. Harder to pinpoint theirs than, than some other teams because – you know, LSU has the talent, but losing a lot of starters. Florida has a lot of starters back there. Secondary should be better. Yeah, I saw this stat today. It might be coming back to haunt them. I think the 18 and 19 recruiting classes, they, they signed a total of three or four interior defensive linemen, and one of them transferred. So I think that's kind of maybe caught up to them a little bit. But they are, you know, Todd Grantham's catching some heat because they, they have a championship offense, but they're not playing well enough defensively right now. By the way, LSU drops out of the top 25 for the first time since 2017. Yeah, I think they are uh, – I'll get another athletic plug here. Matt Brown, one of our editors who's a voter, has a weekly top 25 AP kind of roundup. He has some really good stats in there about LSU being the first team since I forgot when a defending national champ to drop out of the poll. Um, so, yeah, I think Louisiana is ranked. The Raging Cajuns are ranked, and LSU is not ranked. Wow, a year after a national title. That's nuts, yeah. but that's yeah. 2020. Has any opening day win lost more luster than Mississippi State's? Uh, no. And, you know, this this is not an original thought, but uh, Mississippi State fans in, in three weeks have experienced the full Mike Leach experience. And, and with that, I mean a, a thrilling win where you, you just go up and down the field, a puzzling loss, and then the next week of where, where Mike Leach just goes and calls out his team and says, we got some malcontents, we, need to, we might need to purge some guys. So it's already uh, the honeymoon's already over down there, and you know Mike Leach. Uh, I always contended that you know people would say, can his offenses work in the SEC? He, I don't think Mike Leach didn't get an SEC job for the last five or six years because of that. I think it's because he's kind of a wild card. You never know what he's going to say. He's got you know he just he did that at Washington State. He was kind of off the radar. He called his team out and called them once a bunch of fat little girls and stuff like that. This isn't the 70s anymore. You can't just say stuff like that and uh he's he was calling guys out at mississippi state that doesn't fly uh guys aren't going to put up with that so um i don't know if people have solved him but kentucky had 160 yards of offense in that game 160 yards of offense and they won because mississippi state i think had four interceptions so just uh 24 to 2 final and it wasn't really that close I'm sure ESPN or somebody has this. I've never heard of a 24 to two final ever in football. Have you? No, not at all. And uh, I was listening to a podcast today where I said that that's almost more insulting than losing 24 nothing. It just it sounds worse. But 
Yeah, I, I, I watched some of that game. That was kind of on secondary TV, and I didn't see the safety there. I watched a little bit. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Kentucky just kept coming up with turnovers, and kind of and K.J. Costello, the darling of week one, he got benched for a few series there, so it's, it's, uh, it was crazy. Any thoughts on the Missouri matchup next week? That, to me, I would have thought a couple of weeks ago that was their best chance at a win. Um, you know, boy, now it doesn't look so hot. I will say, yeah, I mean, I agree. I will say what we've learned so far is is week to week is hard to predict, maybe harder than ever. You know, I, I know Vanderbilt's been pretty consistent with its poor offensive play, but uh, you know, they held Texas A&M to 17 points and Texas A&M went up and down the field. So, you know, maybe if they get some guys back, I don't know if they will, what the expectations there. Um, I'd be interested to see what Vanderbilt can do offensively against the Missouri team that's not as talented. I know LSU's had troubles, but, the, you know, South Carolina's got pretty good defensive line, pretty good secondary. Point being, this will be the least talented defense Vanderbilt has faced. So see if Ken Seals can make some more, make some progressions there, if they can run the ball. Um, but, you know, obviously you feel less good about Vanderbilt's chances to beat Missouri now than you did before Missouri beat LSU, that's for sure. Best shot at a win, Mississippi State now, perhaps? Where is that game? Home? I think it's there. Okay, yeah, I would say, you know, I would say so. Um, I'm trying to think. Mason left Vanderbilt, left Stanford from 2013. I wonder, uh, Leach got to Mississippi State, uh, Washington State in 2012 or 12 or 13. I wonder how many, if there were any Mason Leach matchups, it was very early in Leach's tenure when they weren't, when they took, you know, how to get going. That's the one thing that they say about Mike Leach is he doesn't really change much. He runs the same thing there. So maybe Derek Mason can dust off his, uh, is a 2012 2013 game plan against Washington State. Yeah, they get state after the Ole Miss game. I think this schedule I have in front of me doesn't have buys, but I'm pretty sure they go let's see they go Missouri then they get their bye week, I believe, and then they they finish off the rest of the season. So that's what 4 weeks out at this point. Yeah, so it's you know, based on Mississippi State's unpredictability, obviously if we did this 2 weeks ago, we would have said, you know, Mississippi State's one of the least likely wins. And before the season, I thought Texas A&M was probably their second least likely win. And that's been their the best game so far. So, I mean, I know it's what we did try and make predictions, trying to figure out what's going to happen. But uh, I feel less secure in my thoughts on a week-to-week basis this, week in, this year in college football than I ever have. Yeah, I think if State's having chemistry trouble, yes, I'd almost Good rather point. have that game later in the season because once a locker room starts to go bad it usually doesn't get better you know sometimes games at the end of the season between bad teams are just who wants to play more um so you know but then again you know if if it's going bad now uh maybe maybe better to catch it sooner rather than later it's it's really neither because it's november the 7th it's almost a month out but right right and we don't know where either team's going to be actually so Mitch, I think that's all I've got for tonight. Anything worth discussion that we didn't get into tonight? Um, we, talked, we talked the NBA and we talked the SEC, so I think we're good. That's exactly what people want from us. Yes, NBA talk right now. I'll give you a little play-by-play. Lakers 54, Heat 34. I'll, this was kind of funny and interesting. You know, I, I guess the SEC is uh, – ESPN is only sending about their top two or three crews to games. Everyone else is doing it remotely. And I, I forgot that that was the case. And 
So I was watching some of the Kentucky game with Tom Hart, Jordan Rogers, and Cole Kubelik. Now Cole Kubelik, the sideline reporter, is going to games. They're sending sideline reporters. And then I'm watching, and Cole Kubelik's kind of doing play-by-play along with Jordan Rogers. And I'm like, what's going on here? I felt like Tom Hart got sick or whatever. Well, Tom Hart was doing the play-by-play from home in Atlanta, and his power went out. So, oh, man. Kubelik uh, was doing the play-by-play, I guess, from the field. I don't know if he went up to the box with Jordan Rogers, but uh, that was crazy. So, um, yeah, that was that was that was fun. And I heard Jordan Rogers when he came back. Maybe Rogers tried to do play by play at first because he said when Tom Hart came back, he's like, I learned one thing that uh, I'm not really good at play by play. It's a completely different animal. So it's oh. uh, just just some more changes, uh, some more challenges in this crazy year. That would be an absolute nightmare. Yeah, that was my one when, when I was sideline reporter. That was like my one thing is like something happened to Joe, like. I can't do play, like I wouldn't even want to try. I would just kind of go up in the booth with Jordan and we'd just kind of talk things through. Like, hey, look at that play. Here's what happened on that play. But like, um, yeah, that was my fear. It's like, how are you feeling today, Joe? Good? Okay, good. So, because uh, um, for those, you know, you can sit there and it's sort of like hosting. I mean, you, you, you've obviously hosted a lot of podcasts, but radio shows and stuff like that, it's a lot easier to answer questions than it is to, to come in and out of breaks. And I actually got decent at it on the pregame show, which wasn't really that difficult, but First time I hosted the pregame show by myself, it was just sort of like, yeah, I wouldn't want to go back and listen to it. It's just, it's, it's something that uh, you definitely need to work at. Oh, it's hard. I remember, you know, because I had done, uh, you know, dozens, hundreds of radio spots before I ever hit the radio. And then I had a show with Chip Hoback for a year where Chip was the host and I was the co-host. And I remember sitting in WNSR and I had a show for two years where I was the host. And I've just got... I remember one time the first week, I just feel the sweat dripping down my yeah. back as we get ready to come. I mean, you think that just the simple act of coming in and out of a break is easy and stuff like it's not. I mean, I, I just, for the first month, I think I was a train wreck. And then I kind of figured it out. The other thing that I figured out is you've got to have a good number two, man. I mean, there, I think there are a few people who can carry a show like Jim Rome would be one. But I think they're very few and far between, and I'm not one of them. And I would think play-by-play would be even worse because at least when you're hosting a show, right, you can plan out the script and all those sorts of things. You can sort of control it. When you play-by-play, you have no control over any of it. It's just one of those things, even in radio in a controlled environment like that, it's harder than people think. With you 100%. So, yeah, So, but uh, that was – that was funny to watch yesterday, and, uh, you know, I, I give Cole Kubelik a, a, a solid C on his play-by-play. He's a better sideline reporter than play-by-play guy. Yeah, well, if anybody can ace it the first time, then they need yeah. to get into the business because exactly. they would have a talent. But, Mitch, thank you for joining us. Tell folks where to find you on Twitter or any other social media accounts you would prefer to promote, and also tell us what is coming up at The Athletic. All right, we have to at, at Mitch Lights, my Twitter. And like I said earlier, we got a big recruiting feature coming up. Uh, SEC will be on Friday, ACC tomorrow. It's kind of a expectations and realities of recruiting with a lot. It's very data-driven, uh, poured over some numbers for the last 10 years. So I think people will enjoy that. So it's at theathletic.com. Appreciate it, Chris. Thank you, Mitch. All right, take care. He's Mitch Light. I'm Chris Lee, host of the Vandy Sports Podcast. We have several of these coming later this week. So be sure and listen for those.